Good morning, Rocky Peak. <laughs> Good to see you. This is like old times. It's great to see you all here. And uh, just excited to be spending this time, this Easter uh, celebration with you. We're going to be going to our time of teaching right now. And so if you're a regular here, you'll know this. But if you're visiting today, a guest, a special welcome. And inside of your program, you have a green and white message note sheet. We'll be using this like we do every weekend. We've got a full-on message today. So it's got a couple hours to go. So uh, you're going to definitely need some. Uh, you're going to definitely want to have that note sheet out. If you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Let's pray. So, Father, we're just thankful to be here in your house on your day. It's this kind of day of all days. We celebrate one of the greatest events in world history, uh, a day that separates uh, before and after, a day by which we mark our calendars, that the day that, uh, of the, that, first, uh, that first Easter, that resurrection day. And so, Lord, as we, we come today, as we study John's account, his firsthand experience of that day, I just pray for great freedom as I teach. I pray that for us as a church, as we gather around your word, that you would just speak to us in new and profound ways uh, and, and, and draw us to yourself in, in new ways, take us deeper in our walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today uh, early on a Monday morning. And uh, to be honest, he's not really slept a wink all night. At least he doesn't think he is. It's one of those nights where you you kind of, the morning comes, your eyes are gritty, and uh, the best he knows, he's not been asleep, but he, he knows, maybe he has, maybe it's been a minute too, but as he wakes up, he, he looks outside the window, and it looks like it's going to be a gorgeous day outside, but inside, there's, there's a storm brewing, there's a storm raging. This past weekend has been the worst weekend of his life, and just when he thought that it can't get any worse... Last night it did. And nothing in his life has prepared him for this. And it's left him baffled. It's left him dazed. It's left him deeply confused. Honestly, he doesn't know what the future holds. He can't see a path forward. He feels more alone than he's ever felt in his life. Well, today we are continuing a series that we've been in for the last month or two here at Rocky Peak that's called Signs, A Path to Glory. And for those of you who are new, a special welcome, but this, this series is actually part three of a three-part series um, that's uh, kind of an in-depth look at the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and friends, a man that we call John, or we now know as the Apostle John. And so in this third and final series, we're, we're watching as John describes kind of the, the last like 24 hours of the last, uh, the, the last few hours of Jesus' uh, uh, life when he's uh, arrested and then executed um, and, and then what happens after that. So if you were here last week, we, we watched as Jesus was not only taken into custody, but he was brought before the Roman governor Pilate, who was, who was in Jerusalem for the Passover week because it's a time of high chance of revolt or rebellion of the people. 
And Jesus is brought before. I mean, we watched as he, he finally gave in and gives the orders for Jesus to be executed. We watched last week as he was crucified on a Roman cross. We talked in detail about what that involved. And then we watched as he not only died, but he was certified dead by the Roman uh, squad that was there uh, overseeing the execution. Then he was, his body was taken down. It was claimed by two high-level Jewish uh, leaders who, who kind of quickly took him hastily to a, a local tomb that one of them owned, uh, just right near where he's crucified, and, and tried to bury him very, kind of wrap him in grave cloths and put him in this tomb very rapidly because uh, it was late Friday afternoon, the Sabbath was coming, they had to have this done before the start of the Sabbath. And we watched last week as there, there were several women there at the cross and also taking part in this kind of rapid burial. And one of those women was a lady named Mary Magdalene. And so today, John's gonna pick up that story. He's gonna fast forward from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning. We're gonna pick up that story of what happens next on that first, first Sunday morning. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Signs the First Day. If you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up. We're gonna, we're gonna turn to uh, John chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible here today, don't have your app, uh, I put inside uh, kind of a special insert, your, your note sheet with John 20, this passage that we're gonna be covering, so you can follow along that way. So in verse one, chapter 20, verse one, it's very early the first day of the week. So it's Sunday morning, it's very early. In fact, John says it's still dark, the sun's just coming up, and Mary Magdalene, one of these women who were there on Friday, she's gonna go to the tomb. Now we know from the other gospels, she's actually going with several other women, probably for safety reasons, uh, headed for this tomb that is being guarded by a squad of Roman soldiers. It's got a special seal from the Roman governor Pilate that anyone messes this on, on pain of death. And so she's heading early in the morning with these other women. Now, for reasons that we'll see later, John's choosing to focus just on Mary's experience. But uh, as she's going, they're, they're planning to do kind of more of a proper burial. A burial is extremely important in Jewish culture. And so, uh, but when she gets there, something is off. Uh, first of all, the, the Roman soldiers, they should not leave, you know, upon pain of death, they're gone. The squad's gone. This huge stone that would probably take several men to move into place is, 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 uh, is removed. And uh, she's gonna jump to the assumption that she would share with pretty much all first century Jewish people that someone must have moved the body. Whether it's grave robbers or somehow the body has been moved. And what we're gonna, we're gonna see today is that kind of in first century Judaism, especially in Israel, that, that probably most Jews, not all, most Jews expected that at the end of time there would be a great resurrection from the dead, but there was nothing in their first century paradigm that prepared them for a resurrection in the middle of time. And, and so she's gonna assume the only thing that she could assume if, if the stones moved away, there's no body, uh, that someone has moved the body. Very distressing. I mean, on Friday she watched the man that she believed was the Messiah uh, arrested, beaten, and crucified on Roman cross. And now to add, uh, to add insult to injury, the body has been moved, and uh, she's extremely upset. And we're gonna see that because she's actually gonna do the only thing that she knows to do, which is to run back to the city, to where um, the, the disciples are staying. We don't know where that was. Um, but to, to get some help, we gotta find the body. And so we see in verse two, so she, she comes running. Notice that, this is not normal behavior. She's running. 
uh, to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. So that, that's from earlier in this gospel. We know that that's John, the author of this gospel. So she comes to them and she says, hey, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. And so this is just as upsetting to them as it is to her. And so they, they start running for the tomb. Now, it's funny because they're both running, but John, our author, is going to tell us that he got there first. Right? He's like, I don't know if he was younger, smarter, faster, quicker, knew a better route, but he's going to tell us a couple times today, I got there first. So... So Peter and the other disciple, they start for the tomb. They're both running, uh, but the other disciple, uh, that would be me, uh, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, when he gets there, he is going to be equally disturbed, like something is off here. Where, where the Roman soldiers don't go off duty. Um, the huge stone, it's gone. The seal's been broken. And uh, something is off. He's already feeling this. And so he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna bend down and he's going to look into this dark tomb. Remember, it's still fairly dark. There's no electricity. And as he looks in this tomb, he's going to see the grave cloths that have been used to wrap the body of Jesus on Friday. He's going to see that they're there and the body is missing. Now, this doesn't make any sense. Because if you're moving the body, especially of a mangled, crucified man, the last thing you're gonna do is unwrap the body and take this naked, mangled corpse to a new location. And, and so John's mind begins to jump into overdrive, as we'll see in a couple minutes, but the whole situation's kind of spooky to him. And so he's looking in, but there's no way he's going in. Now, Peter's gonna show up, and you know Peter, he's just going in. Like, the, yeah, the, true to type, right? He's just going in. So let's see what happens. So, uh, verse five, so John bends over, he looks in, and he, he sees the strips of linen. He's lying in there, but he, he doesn't go in. This is not looking right. But Simon Peter comes along, and he went straight in. And, and so, so now he, Peter's in the tomb. He has a better view of what, what he's seeing, and he sees the strips of linen, but he also sees this, this head cloth. So in that day, in Jew, Jewish burials, they, they would often put a, a special cloth, and even have a special name, over the face, tie it around the head so the body would be wrapped separately from, from the head. And so he, he also sees this cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head and the cloth was still lying in place separate from the linen. Now, so at this point now, John's ready to go in. I mean, Peter went in, he didn't die, nothing bad happened. So finally, the other disciple, oh, by the way, the one who had reached the tomb first. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, uh, he also went inside. Now, at this moment, when he goes inside, something very significant is going to come together. But my hunch is that even while he's running to the tomb with the description that Mary's given, that the soldiers are gone, the stone's removed, there's no body, that even at that point, as he's running, his mind is running through options. What could explain this? This doesn't make any sense. And when he gets there and he looks in and sees the grave cloths, now it doesn't make any sense. And so his mind has been working on overdrive and as he steps in and now he gets a better view, not just the grave cloths, but he sees the face, for, for whatever reason, it all comes together. 
like this, uh, all these facts coalesce. And for him, it's an aha moment. And he says, looking back, it's at that moment that I believed. Now, this is crazy, because there's no reason, like, that, that Jewish paradigm, for, like, this is really breaking a paradigm. But I want you to, what I want you to catch, we'll come back to this later, is that for John, all he needed was the circumstantial evidence. And it all came together. Now, my guess is he didn't probably tell the others that he believed. Either he's waiting for more confirmation or maybe he thought they were going to be crazy, but there's nothing to suggest in his account that he shared that. And so in verse 10, it says that, or verse, uh, verse 9, at the end of verse 8, it says he, he saw and believed. And then in verse 9, he says, by the way, just a quick editorial comment, that they didn't understand from Scripture, talking about the Hebrew, old, uh, Hebrew Bible, the, what we call our Old Testament, they didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So at this point in the story, he doesn't understand None of them understood these ancient prophecies about the Messiah, about his death and resurrection. None of that made any, they hadn't really realized that. And so at this point, he knows Jesus is alive, but how it fits into the larger story that God's telling in the Bible, he doesn't understand. That will come later. And so he says, and the disciples, they went back to the place where they were staying. So they go back to town. Now, meanwhile, we're gonna switch scenes. So just like in a TV drama, where they'll have several uh, concurrent stories going on. The camera switches from one to the next. That, that John's gonna so switch back to Mary now. Remember, we left Mary. She was, uh, had, had run into town. I'm sure she's out of breath. I'm probably not like a triathlete or something, right? She runs into town. She finds them. She gives them the news. They take off running. And so she's kind of slowly made her way, apparently, back to the tomb. And when she gets there, hoping that they would be there and hoping that they maybe together could look and find the body, they're gone. And so now this is like worse than when she started. And, and the, all the pressure, like, why did I go get the men? <laughs> um, and, and so at, at this point, uh, the, all the pressure of the week, this weekend, is going to begin to bear down on her. I mean, she's watched this man that she's followed, that she believes is the Messiah. She's watched him arrested, brutally beaten, and then excruciatingly crucified. Watch him take down the corpse, went to the tomb, watch where he was laid. Now she's discovered that the body is missing. She goes and gets some men to help, and now they're gone. And it just hits her hard, and she begins to cry. And the word that's used in the Greek for her crying is not a few tears. It's more like sobbing. And so he switched back. Now she's, the, swings, the scene switches. She's back at the tomb. They're gone. And it says in verse 11, she stood outside the tomb. She's just weeping. She's sobbing. And as she weeps, she bends over to look inside the tomb like John had done. But she looks in. She sees something different. And John says she actually sees these two angels in white. Now, John is writing this account in retrospect. He knows now what these two beings were. My hunch is at the time, Mary didn't recognize them as angels. It's possible that she did, but there's nothing in her response that suggests that that was the case. And it's interesting because in Mark's gospel, when he, when he describes one of these angels that some of the other women saw, he describes them as a young man dressed in white. That's how he just describes them. And so my hunch is that she, she doesn't recognize, she just sees these two young men, 
maybe dressed in white, but what strikes her is where they are seated. Because remember, she was there on Friday when the body was laid. Finally, when they left, they sealed the tomb. And what's going to strike her is that these two angels are sitting exactly at one at the head and exactly the other at the feet of the feet where Jesus, where the corpse would have been. And it's almost like they're framing this for her. Like instead of where's Waldo, right? It's like, uh, what do you notice different, right? And so let's see what happens. So as she, she verse 12, she sees the two angels in white, but they're seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, one at the foot. And they said, woman, why are you crying or why are you sobbing? And she said, well, they've taken my Lord away. So, she, so catch this. She, she has the same evidence John has, but for her, nothing has clicked yet. She's still operating on our first century paradigm. Resurrections don't happen. That's impossible. And so she is still operating on that. And she says, well, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she hears something, someone approaching from behind. And she turns around. And she sees Jesus standing there. But she doesn't realize it's Jesus. Now, this is interesting because in both Luke's gospel and in Jesus' gospel, we'll see this again next week, several times when Jesus shows up, those who know him best don't recognize him at first. It's as if this new body that he has, remember, it's a very physical body, just like our body. His new body that he has is, is very much like his old body, as we'll see, still has the scars and so on, but there's something different about him. And so, at first glance, and remember, also, of course, she's sobbing, her eyes are filled with tears and all, but she doesn't realize it was Jesus, and so he asked her the same question, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And she just makes a, the, the, a, the natural assumption this is the gardener. Now, remember, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, it's not as crazy as it sounds, because remember, on Friday, because of the hate, they had to get, this thing, they had to get the body buried. They, they buried it in the tomb of this wealthy Jewish man. Jesus' body has no right to be there. This is for his, his family. It, it kind of makes sense that, that in this, uh, maybe it's even a walled uh, garden, we're not sure, but in this, in this rich man's tomb that, that they may have said, hey, that was good for Friday, but now that Sabbath is over, first thing, we need to move him to a different grave. And so she sees this man. She assumes he's the gardener, which I love. And she says, uh, uh, she says, thinking he was the gardener, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will get him. And at this point, uh, Jesus is going to speak a single word. And it's the most beautiful word in all of our lives. It's our name, right? At the moment he says her name, it's like the lights go on. All the evidence that seemed so obvious to John suddenly comes into focus. And in that moment, her first century paradigm crumbles. As impossible it is, she knows it's him. And from all, you know, from this account, it would appear, as we'll see in a second, she seems to like, throw herself maybe around his feet or throw a huge bear hug. I'm not sure, but Jesus is gonna say, hey, you can let go. Like, I'm not going anywhere. It's not time yet. I'll be around for a while. And so she, Jesus says to her, Mary, and this is her aha moment. 
She turns to him and she cries out in Aramaic, which was the common language of Israel at the time, Rabboni, which means teacher, kind of like rabbi. And, and so Jesus says, hey, don't hold on to me. So apparently she's just holding on for dear life. She doesn't want to lose him again. For, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. It's not time yet. I'll be around for a while. So go and said to my brothers and tell them that I will be ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And so, so she's going to take off and she's going to go back and find the disciples. And she says, I have seen the Lord. And she tells them that he had said these things. Now, what's interesting is going to be the disciples' response. That what we're going to see both, both here and, and we see in Luke's gospel is that not only when Mary, but some of the other women come with a similar report, that, that the disciples are going to be extremely skeptical. Now, catch this. The evidence is mounting, but, it, but it's not enough to break through their first century paradigm. Uh, that they've, they've heard the report of John and Peter. The body's missing, the grave cloths are there, the guards are gone, so they've heard all that. They now have firsthand eyewitness testimony from the women, but, but they're not buying it. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it says that what the women said appeared as nonsense to them. And, and so they're, they're very skeptical. And so at this point in the story, John's gonna fast forward. Next scene, Sunday evening. So on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, they're, they're kind of afraid that they'll be next, Jesus comes, right, in person, and he stands among them, and he says, peace be with you. Probably a traditional shalom, right? shalom. And uh, after he had said this, he's going to show them his hands and his, and his side. And what we're going to see is, is that once he, show, he shows up, they're still going to be very skeptical. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he says that when they see him, they assume the only thing that was, could be happening within their paradigm was happening. You know, you know, paradigms are interesting things. Like paradigms help us interpret the world, but they help us to see what we expect to see and not to see what we don't expect to see. And their, their, their worldview, they just didn't have room. And so we're told in Luke's gospel that when Jesus shows up in person, they assume that it's a ghost and it's like a spirit. Like in their worldview, they had room for that, not a physical resurrection. And it's not until Jesus like, shows them his scars. And then in Luke's gospel, has some dinner with them. Do you have any fish here? Um, that, that finally this, this overwhelming set of evidence kind of shatters their paradigm and they, they cross over that invisible line from disbelief to belief. And so John says that similar things happen here. He gives us a shortened version, verse 20, that after he said this, he showed him his hands on the side, and the disciples finally, this is their aha moment, right? So we watched an aha moment for John, circumstantial evidence. Aha moment for Mary took more than that, took a personal encounter, for here it takes even more. And so they were overjoyed. Now, we'll skip down to verse 24. Uh, the problem is, is that one of the 12 is missing. And, and his name is Thomas. And uh, of course, he's become kind of proverbial in our, in our culture. Sorry to say, you know, it's like poor guy. He makes one mistake in the rest of his life. That's what his nickname is. But uh, he, uh, he's gone. He, he's not there that night. Like, I don't know why he's out, you know. Maybe he's at 7-Eleven. Um, you know, maybe he's out buying shawarma for the group. I, I don't know. 
um, but he's, he's missing. Maybe he's a high I, like introvert, and he's just like, I need some, this is the worst weekend of my life. I need to be uh, out by myself. But for whatever reason, he's out. And so when he comes back, the other 10 disciples tell him, hey, it's true that Jesus is alive. And they're all excited. Now, I want you to notice how the evidence is, is mounting. We've got the circumstantial evidence of the morning. We've got the firsthand evidence of the women. But now his band of brothers is telling him, we've seen Jesus. We've touched him. We had dinner with him. But Thomas is not going to be fooled again. You know, Thomas was an extremely brave character. In fact, earlier in this gospel, back in chapter 11, we're told that at, right before Jesus was arrested, um, he gets news that his friend Lazarus is, is sick and Jesus doesn't go right away, so he ends up dying. And uh, he lives, this, this man lived in a town called Bethany that's right outside Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, hey, we're gonna go back. I, I need to go back there. And his disciples like, what? The last time we were in Jerusalem, they were trying to kill you. This is crazy. We can't go back there. But you know, Jesus, you're never changing his mind. So even after, even after arguing, it was Thomas who said to everyone else back in chapter 11, he said, okay, let's go die with him. Let's go too. Thomas is a very brave man. He's ready. And, and so what's happened is that he's watched this man that he's sold out to, that he's given his whole life up for, that he's followed into danger. He, he's watched as this man on Thursday night was arrested, eventually crucified by Rome. This is the man that he thought was the Messiah. He was convinced he was the Messiah. But there's, there's one thing we know is that Messiahs win. They don't lose. Messiahs conquer Rome. They're not crucified by Rome. And when Jesus was crucified, all that meant to any of the disciples was they had backed the wrong man, that whatever Jesus was, he wasn't the Messiah. What we're going to see here is Thomas is very, he is heartbroken over this. He's, he's, he's bitter over this. And so he comes back, and they're telling him the story. He's not buying it. Like, I don't know what's wrong with you guys, but this is not happening. And we're going to read the bitterness, the hurt in his voice. Verse 24, so, so Thomas, also known as Didymus, that means twin, by the way. He had a, another brother, apparently. One of the 12, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, listen, and I, and I want you to see how gritty this is. How gritty, how graphic. I think it reflects the pain, the bitterness of his heart. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I'm not believing. Like, I don't know what's crazy, what you guys are drinking. I don't know what's wrong. I, I, I can't even begin to explain how you all could be duped by, by this, like the women, but this is not happening. This takes us back to the story we started the day with about this man. You remember it was a Monday morning. He's not slept hardly a wink all night. He wakes up, eyes are gritty, sun is shining, starting to come up. It's a beautiful day, but inside a storm is raging. This weekend was the worst weekend of his life. But just when he thought it couldn't get any worse, it did. 
and the last night had happened and it left him completely confused, dazed, befuddled. I mean, he, like he, what's he to make of this? Not only is the man that he believed the Messiah is dead, but now all these men that he's, he's been willing to go to war with, these band of brothers, they've all been duped. Like, what happened to them? I want you to picture what it would be like to be Thomas this next week, to be on the outside, to be convinced that your, your brothers, these men that you trust their judgment, they're They've all been deceived. How does this happen? And there's just no way to even put it, put it into some sort of framework to understand it. What an incredible week it must have been as the one man out while everyone else is rejoicing and you feel completely isolated from the Looney Tunes that you used to trust. But of course, the story doesn't end there. And so a week later, so now it's Sunday night, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, and I love this, Jesus kind of has these new superpowers. <laughs> though, the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you, same thing, shalom. But then I love this, remember he, he, remember, he wasn't there physically in the room as far as they could tell when, when Thomas had, had made these statements about unless I put my fingers in his hands. But what I want to catch is that though he was not there physically, he knew exactly what Thomas had said. And when he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And what I want you to notice, he doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't humiliate him. He's very tender. He just wants to do whatever it takes to help Thomas cross that line from disbelief to the belief, to help him have that aha moment. And so he said to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. It's time to stop doubting. It's time to believe. And for Thomas, this is finally his aha moment. His paradigm can no longer hold up to what he's experiencing and, and my guess, he goes down to his knees. And he, when he gets it, he really gets it. And he says, my Lord and my God. The implications of what he was experiencing, not only the resurrection, but the fact that Jesus knew what he was saying when he was not there, it all comes together. And this profound confession, my Lord and my God. And so Jesus responds to him. He says, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have, have not seen. Like, like John earlier in the chapter. And like all those of us who will come afterwards who have not seen and yet believed. And I want to leave this chapter here for right now. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. But I want to leave it for just a minute and I want to highlight in this Easter week, and I want to highlight the, the main point that John wants us to get, the main principle that he, he wants us to grasp, uh, not only from this, kind of what we're in, a, in a sense is the final chapter of his gospel. Next week we'll, we'll see there's 
one more to go. There's like an epilogue, but, but as we'll see, he's kind of wrapping things up here. And there's a point that he wants us to make to get not only from this chapter, but from his entire gospel. And so it's there on your note sheet. There's a section that's called signs, the key principle. So, so here it is. This is what John wants us to get, that the resurrection is the ultimate sign. This resurrection of Jesus that he has just described, his firsthand experience, is the ultimate sign. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, let me give you some context. Especially for those of us who are here, maybe for the first time, haven't been with us throughout this series, at the top of the message today, I shared with you that that we've been in this longer series, um, this in-depth study of the life of Jesus as seen through our author, the, the, the Apostle John. And we've called this series Signs. And if you were here at the very beginning of the very first series, that, that John starts his gospel with an intro. He kind of introduces us, a long intro. He introduces us to Jesus. And it's, it's a long intro. And in this intro, he makes some bold and audacious claims about who Jesus is and why he came. And there in your note sheet, there's a couple examples of that, but we're not gonna go over them. You can read them for yourself. But back to the very start of this series, I summarized this intro, what, what John had to say about Jesus, these bold and audacious claims. I summarized it like this, that what John is claiming in his intro is that there was a time and a place, a specific time in human history, a specific place. There was a time and a place when the God who created all time in all space, entered into his creation, became a part of the human race to reveal himself, to rescue us, and to give us life, the life that we are created to live, both this life and the next. And then after he makes this, this bold and audacious claims like, like an attorney, with a jury, he begins to set out the evidence in the rest of this gospel. And so in, in the rest of this gospel, he's, he's presented us to supporting evidence, what Jesus did, what he taught, the claims he made about himself, but with special focus on seven specific supernatural signs, miracles, that Jesus performed that help us understand. So of all the miracles, he, he's gonna highlight seven that Jesus performed that help us to understand who Jesus is and why he's come. Now, for those of us who've been through this series, we, we, we will remember these. Uh, remember in chapter two, that Jesus' first sign was the turning of water into wine, 150 gallons. Like he did in a moment what the creator does over a longer time every year. And then we came to chapter four, and we watched as Jesus healed the sick son of a nobleman from 16 miles away, the son was dying, from 16 miles away with the single command, he healed him at distance. And then we watched in chapter five as Jesus with his disciples were in Jerusalem, and he approached a man who had been lame, unable to walk for 38 years. And with a single command, he healed him. And then we watch in chapter six, as John fed, I mean, as Jesus fed 5,000 men and their families 
with one kid's Happy Meal. Remember that? Five, you know, it was kind of their version. McDonald's did like five loaves and two fishes those days. Um, and then there came later in chapter six, the fifth sign, where in the middle of the night, on a stormy night, Jesus went to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, walking up and down the waves in the midst of the storm, like the God of Israel in the Old Testament who walks up on the waves. And then in, in chapter nine, we saw the sixth sign where Jesus in Jerusalem, very public event, he healed the eyes of a man who'd been born blind. And then came the seventh and final sign before his arrest, this one I, I mentioned earlier, where he traveled back to Bethany, out right outside Jerusalem, and he raised his friend, the man he loved, Lazarus, from the dead after he'd been in the tomb for four days. And so throughout this gospel, John has been uh, not only sharing his, the claims Jesus made and what he did, but special highlight on these seven supernatural signs. But today in this final chapter of the main storyline, he's gonna share the eighth and ultimate sign is his own resurrection from the dead. And so remember, we, we left off in chapter 20 where, where Thomas had made his confession, my Lord, my God, and Jesus had blessed, you know, you, you, because you've seen, you believe, but blessed are those who haven't seen. But this is the very next thing that, that John's gonna write as he brings this gospel to a close. He says there on your note sheet, in John 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs. So, so he has been highly selective in, in, the, in the seven plus the resurrection. He says, he's, he's performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. Next week in the epilogue, he'll say, I suppose if I told you everything Jesus did, all the libraries in the world, of course, there are smaller libraries then, but all the libraries in the world couldn't contain. And he said, so I... He's performed many other signs. He says, but these are written. The reason I've written these is so that you can cross this line from disbelief to belief, that you can become convinced, you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, which as Jesus we saw back in chapter five, he called God his Father, making himself equal to God. And that by believing, you may have what? Life. Let's say it together. That by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. And as we've seen, this is what Jesus has talked to us time and time again throughout his teaching. The reason he's come is to give us life. This life with a capital L, the life that we were designed to live, both in this life and the next. And he's talked about so many different metaphors, right? That this new life is like the water of life that alone can satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. This, this life is like the bread of life that alone can satisfy the deepest hunger of the human heart. This, this life in John 10, he said, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. And so John says, that's why I wrote this gospel. I've made my claims, I've laid out my evidence. You've just seen the ultimate sign. And so the question is, how will you respond? I, I've, I've written down my firsthand experience to help you cross this line from disbelief to belief so that you can enter into this new life that 
that the God who created us entered into creation to give us. So it raises this question for all of us. And there in your note sheet, in this final section, there's this, this question there. It says, signs the key question. Yeah, you have to turn the page. I learned that last service. <laughs> signs the key question. And so, so here's the question that I think for, for all of us is presented by this evidence that John has laid out, uh, not only in John 20, but this, this, this entire gospel the question is, what is your response to the ultimate sign? This ultimate sign that comes as number eight, an ultimate, but, but this is like, everything's been leading up to this. This is a great crescendo. This is ultimate. John's laying down his, his ace in the hole. This is the final piece of evidence. He saved the best for last. And and the question is, what is each of our, how we respond to this case that John has laid out like an attorney for us? And what's interesting to me, as we look at John 20, we, as we, we look today, unpacked it together, what's interesting to me is how different people cross this line between disbelief, where they all started, and belief, but they took different paths to get there. And I think that it's the same today. Like, like let, me, let me explain what I mean. Like, we, we watched how John came, just based on the circumstantial evidence. Uh, he, he, he's just, he's a smart guy or whatever. He just puts together the facts and it's like, oh my goodness. Uh, and it just clicks, right? He, he, hey, the... The missing guards, the stone roves away, the grave cloths there, the body, got, it just clicks. And I've seen this today that for many of us, this is how we come to Jesus. So we hear this simple gospel. What I mean is the story of the life of Jesus, his life, his teaching, um, his death, his resurrection. And for whatever reason, for us, it just clicks. It just seems so obviously true. And we easily cross over this line from from disbelief to belief and experience this new life that Jesus promised. Some of us are like that. Um, but there's others of us that we are slower. We're more like Mary, right? That she had the same exact circumstantial evidence that John had, but as we saw, it did nothing for her. She comes back to the tomb. She's still operating the same theory she started the day with. And it, it wasn't until Jesus revealed himself to her in a very personal way, she had her own personal encounter, that suddenly the evidence all came together and she had her aha experience. I think some of us are like that. That, that for us to cross over that line between discipline, that yeah, we, we, we know the story, but, but we need God to reveal himself to us in some kind of personal way that just seems clearly supernatural to us and puts it all together. For others of us, and I would put myself kind of in this category, this type of person, but we're kind of skeptical by nature. Maybe some of us in this room are like the ultimate skeptic, like Thomas. And sure, you know, we, we've known the story about Jesus, we're somewhat familiar with it, but, but we're 21st century people. This doesn't fit into our paradigm of the way life works any more than they did in the first century. And yes, we have friends who claim that Jesus has come in their life and changed them. Yes, and, and yeah, we've seen that. It's very real. 
Well, there's some crazy Christians out there, but there's like some real ones that we've known that they, they really, their life really has been changed and, and you kind of admire that. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, like, they're like the women testifying today, you know, that we've seen, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm glad that works for you. But for us, we're just more skeptical. We're more like the disciples. We're more like Thomas. And, and for us, it's going to require us to, to really do some deep study on our own, to really examine this evidence on our own. Maybe it's going to require a personal touch encounter with Jesus as well. But what I want you to catch is that, that what's important is not how we cross over that line, what path we take, What's important is that we take it. What's important is that whatever it takes, we step over that line and enter into this new life that only Jesus can give. And so the question is for us then, how will we respond to this ultimate sign? And while you're thinking about that, kind of processing that, we wanna share a life story with you from someone here in our own church who kind of took this journey from disbelief to belief about four years ago. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, every one of our journeys is unique, right? And in her story, what you're going to see is that one of the things that Jesus used in, in her life to make this transition from disbelief to belief was, was actual people who were living out of Jesus' life with her. And as she got to see, like, kind of see Jesus living his life through them. And so let's turn our attention to the screen as you reflect on this question of how will you respond to this ultimate sign? My name is Kaylee Holland, and I am recently married to the most wonderful man I've ever met. We have a German shepherd, he's amazing. I love exploring on hikes and adventuring. I wouldn't be who I am today without God, saving the best for last. I think who I am really is reflected in who He is. My mother was a single mother. My father left right before I was born. She raised me with her parents. My grandparents were incredible people. My grandfather was the traditional head of the house. My grandmother, she was the emotional support. My mom, she always did the best that she could. I was an only child, and so I didn't really know how to socialize until about high school. My mom sent me to a Christian school. Everything that I was learning in church wasn't fully replicated in the home. I never really thought about my father. And then the day before my 16th birthday, my dad sent me a message on Facebook said basically that he wanted to meet me, that he wanted to get to know who I was. I decided to reach out to him, which led to one of the most interesting, but also the most painful relationship in my life. I finally make it to college. I'm on campus. I'm learning how to be a young adult. I'm rushing a sorority. I finally have a place where I feel like I belong. I was having the time of my life. But just like any calm, the storm comes, and I was faced with a double trauma that really shaped my life. One morning, my mom comes in while I'm getting ready in the bathroom because my grandmother had a seizure, which was normal because she had epilepsy. 
About 20 minutes later, my mom comes in. And just the look on her face, she told me that, that Nana had passed away. The fact that she was just gone. She really was a mother to me. At that moment of time, is just frozen. About a month later, I got invited to a formal party. This formal was at a destination and we took a bus. And by the time we got back, it was pretty late. And so I found a friend's couch to crash on. When we got to his place, we decided to watch a movie. During that movie, he kept wanting more than I wanted to give. Everything just kind of turned off. It was like I became nothing. For the next couple of months, I struggled with just wanting to end my life. Looking back on the situation, I can see that this was the moment that I stopped being open to the idea of a God I could have a relationship with. I put my faith in my friends at that point, and they were practicing witchcraft and Wicca and the like. The soul inside of me that felt like it died was rotting through everything. And I found a new escape to run away from it with going on the next adventure with my coven. And I think ultimately I was just trying to feel again. I would do really immoral things just to stir something inside of me. I finally had the courage to go and meet with a counselor and she diagnosed me with PTSD. About a month after being diagnosed, I found my dream dog, named this dog Coda, and he was able to pull me out of flashbacks. And there was a point where I started to move forward again. And I took another step and got a job at a gym. One of my coworkers, we hit it off and became pretty good friends. And he invited me to the church at Rocky Peak. What really surprised me wasn't that he asked me to go to church, but that I was open to going back to church. So I came to campus. I just let myself blend into the crowd. And a part of that process, I found my way into the young adults program. But that was kind of scary because here I was, this witchcraft person who was really rough around the edges, had a very immoral past, and the whole fear of are they going to accept me just came back to the surface. They would talk about moral issues and I was like, that's Tuesday, that's my normal Tuesday, is this immoral issue? I was definitely broken and misshapen and just not a pretty person. But yet, it didn't scare anyone away. They didn't turn their backs on me, they invited me in deeper. There was some sort of authenticity in the people that I had never experienced before. Jesus no longer was the cross on the wall at my parents' house. He became the people around me. I was able to see Jesus and talk to Jesus, and that community to me is where I met Jesus. As I was developing this relationship with Jesus, he became so real. Jesus just loved me, and I think he was the first person I was able to trust. When I got baptized, everything fell into place the first door unlocking into that deeper part that I've just never been able to touch. It's been four years since I've been baptized. I can feel things again. That's a miracle. 
Things are just brighter. The inside of me is richer. The colors around me are more vibrant. It's like I'm alive for the first time. In a nutshell, before Jesus, it was nothing. And now, there's something. And that something's good. And that something's God. Capital G, God. Let's pray together. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to give you a chance to respond to this uh, opportunity that John has given us today. You know, my, my hunch is, is that for those of us maybe who entered in today here on campus, and as you walked on, you would perhaps not describe yourself as a believer in Jesus. Maybe you're here for other reasons. Maybe family is invited, or a friend is invited, or this is just what you do at Easter or whatever, but you would not describe yourself uh, as a follower of Jesus, one who believes that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. You've given your life to him. He's come into your life. He's changed your life. That would not be you, but for whatever reason, that today it's all come together. Whether your journey has been like John's journey, just short, quick, you've heard the message, it makes sense, you're ready to follow Jesus, or maybe that you're actually coming today after a long journey, and this is just sort of the end point. And for whatever reason, though, you've been here today, you didn't enter in this way, but what, but even during this service, somehow you've crossed that line. It's that aha moment has come and you, you've crossed from disbelief to belief. And if that's you, in a few minutes, I wanna give you a chance just to ask Jesus into your life, to give you this gift of new life that only he can give. And my hunch is probably room of this many people, there's probably some of us that maybe would identify not with John, but more with Mary Magdalene, that, that you entered in here today and you, you, you came not as a believer in Jesus. You're not, you're not opposed to that any more than she was, but, but it's just the circumstantial evidence, the story, you've heard it all. It's just maybe even have some, some friends that that have really met Jesus, he's changed your life, and they keep talking to you about it, trying to get you to come to church, whatever, but it's just never really clicked for you. And that for you, you're gonna need a more personal touch. You're gonna be in some way for God to reveal himself in a very personal way, kind of like he did with Mary, speaking her name. And I wanna challenge you that, that you would respond today in this question, how will you respond to this ultimate sign, that you would respond I mean, whether it's what's here and during this service, maybe it's later today, maybe it's in your car or when you get home, that you would just take some time and just, just pray a very simple prayer. And you may not even know if anyone's listening, but that's okay because there's nothing really to lose. No one's listening. No one loses. But you would simply ask that, ask God to, to meet you, that if this is, if Jesus is really true, if this story is true, if he's come to give you life, just ask Jesus to reveal himself to you and in a personal way that would, would help you cross over that line. It's a beautiful prayer. I believe God responds to, 
to honest seekers. And then some of you, maybe you see yourself more as like the disciples, more skeptical, maybe even like Thomas, that that you've heard the story of Jesus before, you know the basic message of Christianity or Easter. Maybe you too have had some friends that, that like the women have testified to you that, hey, they met Jesus, he's alive, he's changed your life. But for you, just the way you're wired, that you're gonna need to do some research on this. You're gonna need to study the facts for yourself. And maybe that personal touch from Jesus as well. And if that's you, I, I wanna challenge you to do just what I always challenge honest skeptics to do, is to check it out for yourself. Some great resources. I put a couple there on your note sheet in this last section. These are two really bright, gifted men who were non-believers, but for different reasons they felt like, to be honest, they needed just to do the research into the Gospels, how reliable they are. Uh, the evidence for the resurrection isn't really solid. And in that process, not only did they discover that the evidence was solid, but in the process, they, they met Jesus. And, and if, you're, if you consider yourself an honest skeptic, I, I would encourage you to take that step. We've got these books in our bookstore. If we, if we sell out, they're easy to order on Amazon, some other, some other distributor. But for those of you who came in as a non-believer, but, but that aha has happened today, I wanna give you a chance right now to ask Jesus into your life to do what only he can do, to give you that living water that alone can satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart, to, to become to you your bread of life that satisfies that deepest hunger of the human heart, to, be, to give you that life that he said was life to the full, both for this life and the next. And that's you. I, I wanna pray a very simple prayer right now. And if this expresses a desire of your heart, I encourage you to pray along with me, maybe under your breath or, or in your mind. But if you're sincere, I believe that Jesus will respond. And so let's just pray together. Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I do believe that you're the Messiah. I believe the story is true. I believe that you're the Son of God. I ask you to come into my life. Forgive all my sin and rebellion. And to give me this new life that you promised. And to teach me how to follow you. While our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, let's encourage you, if, if that's you and you just prayed that prayer, we would love to share that discovery uh, together. And uh, I would love to send you like an email or a letter this week. Just short, that would just give you some encouragement and some steps of your kind of first steps to take in your new relationship with Jesus to help you grow in that relationship. So inside your program is a little connect card. If you just fill out the front with your information, contact information, and write a note to me on the back, Michael, I, I gave my life to Jesus or asked Jesus in my life. We'll know what you mean, and we will respond with that this week. So Lord, as we come to the end of this celebration of your life, your death, your resurrection that gives us all new life. Lord, we want to enter into a time of, 
of praise, one final song of worship. We thank you, Lord, that, that the resurrection is not just a one-off event that, that proves who you are, though it is that, but it's really the first step of the resurrection of the whole new creation that's coming and those who will, who will live with you forever. And Lord, that when we come to you, we receive you in our life, that we begin to experience your resurrection power rising in us, giving us that new life, that the resurrected Jesus is resurrecting us. And we pray, Lord, as we celebrate this together, you'd come and be with us and speak these things to our heart in a new and fresh way. And not just for those of us who maybe have just come to you or thinking about coming, but for those of us who know you, that as we sing this together, this would be a challenge to live out the resurrection in our life. Maybe if some of us are here that we once gave our lives to you, but we've been far from you. And today we just wanna come home. We pray that as we worship you now, you'd meet us and receive us. Those of us who are in that story, like the father of the prodigal, you run to us and meet us as you welcome us home. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.